This is the European Tour's Life on Tour podcast, presented by Hilton. Hello and welcome to another edition of Life on Tour, presented by Hilton. I'm Andrew Cotter and... Well, this is where we talk to some of the key figures on the European tour. This week, just to set the scene for you, we are sitting in what I would uh, consider probably the greatest office in, I was going to say in golf, but in the world, because we are sitting in the office of the, the chief executive, uh, Martin Slumbers of the Royal and Ancient. We're not talking to Martin, I'll introduce our guest in a moment, but here we are sitting above the first tee, looking out a rather grey day on the old course, but it is, as ever, uh, resplendent. And we are here to talk to a man who has been a key figure within the European Tour for, well, he'll tell us how many years, but he has been chief referee of the European Tour for over 20 years. It is John Paramore. John, uh, good morning to you. Just about good morning. Good morning, Andrew. Good morning. So how many years? 20 years as chief referee and a bit more? And Yes, I started over 42 years ago. 42 years ago. Well, we should go back then to the... The very start, before you were uh, even refereeing on tour, because you were uh, a very keen golfer growing up, and I dare I say yes. it, uh, a very good golfer as well? <laughs> That's debatable. Mm. Uh, I think as, as a young man I was foolish enough to believe that I might be able to play for a living. Mm. And um, I got the opportunity to uh, caddy for a golf professional called Peter Butler, a very fine golf professional and Ryder Cup player. And he took me on for a season, and having worked that season with Peter, I realised that I was never going to be good enough to uh, earn any sort of reasonable living playing the game. So I knocked that on the head and just said to Peter, if you hear of anything, come me up in the golf business, please let me know, because it's a game I love. Unfortunately, it's not going to be through playing that I'm going to continue in this game. Ah, well done to yourself. Sorry, amateur champion, is that... uh... I think everybody else fell over, really, uh, uh, Andrew. Probably a big illness or something, wiping through the, uh, the uh, Surrey countryside. But, uh, yeah, I got lucky in, back in uh, 87. Mm. I'll take the win. Well, so when you, were, when you were playing boys golf then, were there any uh, up-and-coming players who went on to great things in, in senior and pro golf? Yeah, we, we, um, um, I played for Middlesex for a time and, and played for the Colts side, which is the sort of under-21. And... Um, we, we were drawn against Hertfordshire with one of the, uh, the, the league matches and uh, we played against this team. They had a couple of Browns in the, uh, in the uh, team and um, one of them was, was Nick Brown, the other one was Ken Brown. Mm. And uh, they also had a, a young fellow, this tall, thin guy called Faldo. Mm. And uh, you'll not be surprised to learn that we didn't beat Hertfordshire that day. In fact, we got a bit of a hiding. Did you and, make sure uh, that you didn't... Uh... I made sure I didn't play Nick Fowler, absolutely. <laughs> Being captain, you can do those sort of things. Excellent. Right, so you mentioned caddying for, uh, for Peter Butler and realising that you perhaps weren't going to make it as a player. So, so then how did it come about that you, you started refereeing? And was that your initial job? Was it straight into to refereeing? Well, the, the, the fascinating thing is that the European Tour were really in their infancy in those days, just started. And um, Peter was on the uh, tournament committee of the European Tour and it was agreed that they were going to increase the staff to find an assistant for Tony Gray and George O'Grady who were the tournament directors of the day. They'd been there for two years and uh, things moved quickly in in, in those days but they wanted a young apprentice to take on to train up in in the rules of golf. And um, Peter put my name forward, suggested that uh, I might be okay. And um, he also said, um, as he's uh, keen to tell me, and Ken Schofield, who was the uh, chief administrator at that stage, 
his dad's got a few quid, so he won't need to be paid very well. And so <laughs> I, I don't know where he actually got that from, but uh, anyway, that, I think, helped with the situation. I went for an interview with, uh, with Ken Schofield, and he was foolish enough to offer me a job, and uh, I started working, as I say, in 1976. But what was the European tour, as you say, it really was in its infancy, so what was it, it like back then in terms of the number of tournaments, and just, you know, the, the infrastructure compared to what we see today, obviously it was a, a fairly rudimentary. Well, I was the sort of sixth and a half, seventh employee. The reason I say that is we shared a receptionist with the PGA, as we shared the office with the PGA, and a strange thing, our offices were at the Oval Cricket Ground, so, you know, cricket headquarters, Surrey Cricket. And uh, we had these offices underneath the members' stand. And um, it was really, everybody had to be a jack-of-all-trades. And uh, back in those days, you used to go to your tournaments, and then you'd uh, produce the results yourself... Uh, and then you would write out the cheques and you'd write out the envelopes and put the cheques in the envelopes and mail them to the players. So it was kind of you did everything. Uh, so it was exciting. Uh, how many uh, tournaments a year were there at this, at this point? Well, it used to... It used to, The season used to start in sort of towards the back end of April mm. and then go on until October. And then in the winter, the only kind of things we had were the odd pro-ams... Uh, and a tour to the safari tour events. They were, they were kind of uh, an alternative to South Africa, which, as you know, was going through a few problems mm. with the apartheid situation. And our players really needed somewhere else that they could play, which was sort of politically correct and didn't have any issues. And so the, um, mainly the expatriates in, in the countries in Nigeria, um, the Ivory Coast, uh, Kenya, Zambia, Zimbabwe... They kind of got together and, and we formed them into a tour and sent a number of players down there. And that was really where I learnt the trade, I think, for my, for, on my own basis. But you talk about the trade being refereeing. I mean, yeah. how, why refereeing? Did you, were you interested in the rules or were you just a strict disciplinarian? Or? I think I had a morbid interest in the rules. Mm. I thought they were, they were quite amusing at times. And I certainly used to get myself into a few scrapes. And I used to enjoy trying to find the answer in the book. And it was only really when I started working with uh, George O'Grady and Tony Gray, uh, they showed me how to use the rule book and hold it the right way up and that sort of thing. And um, from them, I gained so much information and that helped me understand the rules. And, and once you start understanding the rules and what they're there for, um, it, it really helps you um, to help others. And now I, I suppose that's where, where it came from. And we see you, um, when we do see you, it's because <laughs> something has gone wrong. But I mean, yeah. again, take us back to some of the, the bigger characters on tour. And I think people would most know you within golf for, I don't say run-ins with the likes of, of Seve, but Seve Biceps is always a name. You know, we're sitting here, in, and I can see pictures of him there winning in, in 1984 in the famous celebration and a portrait over there of him inside this, this office. He's such a big figure, but he, he could be a difficult figure as well at times. I think with all winners, there is this, this determination to win. Not win at all costs, but to win. And they, and, and they always believe in themselves, their talent, and probably the fact that they're right most of the time. And that's what they believe. And occasionally, uh, I or one of my colleagues will have to go along and say, well, uh, yeah, you're right on everything except this, and this is the rule. 
So therefore you can't actually move your ball from that position over there in the bush to this nice position over here for nothing. It will cost you a one-stroke penalty. Those sort of things. And it's, and it's up to us. We, we are some of um, the few uh, number of people who are, have to say to our members these days, sorry, but no. Well, we one, try and do it nicely. Uh, I mean, there's, yes. There's one I specifically remember, and a lot of people might remember it, uh, was it, um, because he was, always, he was always looking for a, a scrape, an animal scrape here or there, but it was Valderrama, 94? 94, yeah, absolutely. 94, where he was up against a tree. So if you could just explain the situation, because you were the referee summoned to try and deal with, with Seve on this occasion. Well, the, the, the nice thing about um, being with Seve is that he started in 1975, I started in my caddy in 1975, then with the tour in 76. So we kind of started at the same time. And even though we went down slightly different routes, we were, we were linked. Mm. And, you knew um, each other well. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And yes, we used to have the occasional, um, shall we say, coming together on the golf course. All, all, all fair and above board. Um, but, you know, he was, well, I was in awe of his talent, uh, for one thing. Um, but we did have a good working relationship. And I think it's fair that... Um, he was probably more prone to get relief from something because he could demonstrate how to do it, whereas other players didn't have that necessary mm. talent. And so that, you know, you'd say to Seve, yeah, I believe you can play that stroke, so you, you do qualify for relief. But in this particular one that you, you're, you refer to, and it does come up quite a, a lot whenever uh, people ask me about rulings, uh, it was a poignant moment because Seve had not been playing well in the early yeah. 90s. Uh, he'd had a bit of dropping off in form. And um, 94 seemed to be a resurgence. He was, he was on the way back. He was winning again and he was com- contending again. And it was the final tournament, the final day of the final tournament of the 94 season. And um, I think the BBC were actually covering uh, the event live into, uh, into the UK. Those were the days. Those were the days. And uh, so it was, it, it was, everything was set beautifully. Seve was leading um, throughout the tournament. He didn't birdie the 17th, though. So that left him tied with Bernard Langer. Mm. Seve hits his tee shot at the 18th, knowing that he needs a four to tie, birdie three to win, which is obviously he, he was looking for. And um, he slightly came off the tee shot and it flew to the right and went very close to a tree. It was quite a well-established tree and at the base of the tree, fairly close to his ball, was a large hole. And when he got there, he believed that um, the uh, contents of this hole, which was obviously scraped to the side, uh, was going to interfere with his uh, backswing. And we had a referee walking with the game, and um, it was Guy Hunt, the lovely Guy Hunt, the player, former Ryder Cup player himself, and quickly realised that he didn't want to get involved with this one at all and called me straight away. And I was sort of just getting ready for the prize presentation because we used to um, MC the prize presentations in those days. And um, thinking that my, my kind of tournament was done, the season was done, marvellous. And mm. then I get this call from Guy, and I turned around and saw it on the television. Oh, my goodness. So I drove the buggy out there, and I, I meet Seve. And he shows me the ball, he takes a club, he shows me the swing, he anticipates playing, and said that this, um, the contents of the hole, which is clearly a hole made by a barring animal, um, interferes with my backswing, and I need relief which also would have given him relief from the tree as well. But and, conveniently. Yes, conveniently. Uh, so I looked at it and I said, well, you know, 
Dogs can dig holes. Many animals can can dig holes. Um, But currently, the rules say that it must be a burrowing animal um, hole. And certainly, most in in my experience, whilst they're digging, normally leave some sort of evidence on the ground. We're we're diverging slightly here, but I love going into the detail of golf rules there because it had to be a burrowing animal. So what animals would that specify compared to... Well, we have uh, animals like moles, mm-hmm. um, like rabbits. It's all burrowing, yeah. And um, certainly I was looking for that uh, essential bit of evidence. Okay, so, so a dog digging a hole is not burrowing, even if that dog is burrowing. No, it's not a burrowing animal. Right, I see. That's interesting. And it, it, it's kind of... that The animal should live in the burrow, right, and the dog see. doesn't live in the burrow. Not even a Jack Russell. No, no. Um, so... Sadly, I couldn't find any evidence, and I'd have to say I was, I was in this hole for about 20 minutes looking for said <laughs> evidence, and um, looking for a bit of, well, shall we say droppings, mm. that's basically what I'm looking for, and uh, unusual job, people would say, um, and at one stage there, there was another smaller hole inside the bigger hole, and I, I, I sort of tentatively put my finger in it, and I felt this big paw on my shoulder, it was Sevy saying, be careful, eat my bite. <laughs> And that's the make of the man, that in this very highly charged, tense atmosphere, you know, he, he cracks an absolute beauty. Uh, to try and further his cause, of course, but, um, and I said thank you for that bit of advice. And um, it didn't bite, thankfully, and in the end I said no. And he said, well, what is the situation? And um, I said, well, I'm the chief referee here, and unfortunately, that's it. And he said, so you say no. I said, I'm afraid so. That's it's no. Uh, and again, you touched upon it there, as you know, you'd known him for a long, long time. And even when you've got your business head on, and you're there to apply the rules in quite a cold, clinical manner, you must have admired some of the shots you, you saw out there, not just from Sevi, but from other players as well. Yeah, I, I think um, Sevi. You know, I, I kind of look at it. Who would I pay to go and watch? Mm. Absolutely no question that I would pay to go and watch Sevi because you would be entertained. Not only with the brilliant shot making, the, 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 the short shots, the, the inventiveness of, of how he was going to play. I'll, I'll take you back to uh, the 85 Ryder Cup, and I, I was refereeing the first game, which happened to be Severiano Ballesteros, partner with Manuel Pinheiro. And um, we got to the first par five at the Belfry, mm-hmm. and Pinheiro had hit the tee shot, and Sevi is now standing over the second shot, and Pin- Pinheiro arrives. Sevi had sort of walked ahead and, and was sizing up the shot. And when Pinheiro arrived, and I, I could understand a bit of Spanish in those days, and he was saying to Pinheiro, how would you like me to hit this shot? He said, I can either hit a sort of low cut, and I'll leave you on the right-hand side of the hole, I can probably get it to about 20 feet on the right, or I can hit a high draw. He said, that'll leave you on the left-hand side, but that'll give you a, a right-to-left putt, would you prefer that? You know, which side of the green would you like to be? Now, he's 250 yards away from the green, and he's, he's so confident mm. that he's saying to Pinheiro, you know, which side of the flag would you like to putt from? Mm. And at that moment, I realised how great this guy really was, yeah. because he could do it. And, and I saw a quote from you, actually, and you talk about the growth of the European tour, but you say how, you know, that he was so responsible himself for the growth of the European Tour, that you almost owe, owe, your, jo- owe your job and your career to Seve Ballesteros and what he did for the, for the Tour. Not, not solely, but he had a man- mammoth amount of, of, yeah. of influence on the European Tour. Uh, he was so supportive. He used to play with us. 
um, and he was he was the flag waver. Even though sometimes, occasionally, he used to get upset. Um, we, we we all know that. Uh, there were all sorts of, of talks about appearance money, um, you know. And, and back in those days, a number of our sponsors used to entice some American players to come over and often pay them a reasonable amount of, of turning up money. Well, Seve, who could you know almost dust them one one handed, mm-hmm. you know, would say, "Well, hang on a minute. If you're going to pay them, you should be paying me." So that that put us in, in a rather difficult position uh, back in those days. Um, but certainly I, I believe that Ken and, and, and our, our tournament committee, they, they dealt with this very, very well and uh, were able to smooth out all of the kind of problems that we had. But occasionally Sevi would get frustrated that others got things that he didn't yeah. and he felt that he was due those things. And it was our job to kind of keep him on side and, and, and make sure that he, he remained a, a, a true and loyal European forever because yeah. that's what he wanted. Yeah. One of the most memorable incidents in which you were sort of front seat and, and actually involved, it involved another member of the Big Five. If you go forward to, to Lytham in 2001, and it's such a, I don't know, painful memory for, for Ian Woosnam, but you were there at the second tee when... He found out, and his caddy found out, that he had an extra driver in the bag. But again, you were referee with that match, so you'd been there from the start. So if you just explain a bit of the background um, to that one. Yes, there's a bit, a bit of background that you probably don't know, and that is that I did break my, uh, my knee in uh, April. And so I'd been in plaster and uh, been working hard to get fit again. And my first week back was the Open. And, um, and I did suggest to uh, Dave Rickman that I might be able to, to walk the last round, and uh, which was fairly brave considering I hadn't been walking anywhere really with a broken leg. And um, so he, he gave me this, this game with uh, Ian Woosnam. And um, Woozy, bless him, um, had been on the range and been testing drivers. I only found this out later, but that will explain the, 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 the story. We also had a situation that uh, in the previous years, uh, some of the uh, RNA referees uh, who asked the players that, you know, have you got uh, more than 14 clubs? Um, and quite correctly, to try and avoid the players attracting a penalty. On the first tee, they would yes, do Yes, on the first tee, they would do that and just make sure that the players check themselves. And they, they, they kind of weren't treated very well by the players. What do you think? I am an idiot. You know, so the, the, the chairman of the championship committee said, you know, look, we've, we've tried to help and um, we've been made to feel pretty bad, so... This year, I don't want anybody asking any player if they've got 14 clubs in the bag. So please desist. Now, that's something we normally do. But we didn't, because he asked us not to do it. So no And you yourself, no you're not going to go up to the bags and count clubs, because no. that's kind of an intrusion. No. Yeah. no, I'm not going to touch the player's equipment. Yeah. That's, that's, that's his. And um, the other slight problem was that Royal Lytham is a par 3 start. Yeah. If it was a par four start, then almost certainly, as soon as one driver is taken out of the bag, the other driver would have come into uh, yeah. view, um, because that's what he had, an extra driver. But he was hitting an iron, because it's a par three. And um, having hit the shot and walked down to the green, and the um, caddy was searching for the putter in the bag to give him, uh, he'd actually hit it almost stone dead at the first. Yeah. Um, he, he looked and he saw this extra club and Woosnam had just gone down and tapped in and the caddy was beside me looking very flustered and he said, Woos is going to kill me. Yeah. I said, I'm sorry, I don't know what you're talking about. And he scurried off to find Woosnam at the second tee. 
and I could see they had a fairly animated conversation. And when I arrived, just a couple of seconds later, uh, was turned to me and said, what's the penalty for 15 clubs? And I said, well, it's, um, it's two per hole, maximum four per round. He said, well, I haven't started the second. I said, no, you haven't, so it's just two. And he took out the uh, offending driver that he'd been trying on the range and threw it past my eyes. Yeah. Um, not at me, I, I must say, he was just throwing it away. And it's, and it's a question that, I, that, that I've asked myself many times, is when you're one stroke off leading the Open, because the birdie at the first mm-hmm. tied him for the lead, uh, why would you be testing drivers? Yeah, well, yeah. Couldn't understand it. And I've never been satisfied with, with the answer. Well, I suppose every player's looking for that extra special little ingredient. Yeah. I mean, uh, in a situation like that, when it is so, because we all remember the pictures and we could pick up the sound and, you know, we could hear him saying, you know, to Miles Burney's kind of uh, you know, give you one job to do. And it's such an emotional moment, but you have to just be detached and say, this is the situation. Yes. And, uh, you know, I, I, think, I think I've had a reasonable knack of putting the message across, which is it's normally accepted uh, with, without a, a huge problem. Um, there are others who, who don't have that knack, and it's difficult for them. And sometimes the players will, as you, as you say, react but, in a but, different way. But, I mean, of course, you're walking with that group. So did you, did you have anything to say to Woozy for the rest? I mean, obviously, for a few holes, he is beyond hot under the collar. But did you have any interaction with him after that? I tried to stay out of the way. And if he spoke to me, then I, I, I would speak to him. But I wasn't going to um, start any conversations. It was, that was up to him. I could see that it had affected his golf game. The swing was different. It was quicker, um, more violent, and he was starting to um, get down on himself, and, and that's never a good thing for a golfer, uh, particularly uh, like Ian. He quickly got out of that, but at, at that stage he'd already dropped two shots. Yeah. And uh, you know, with the penalty as well, now he's, he's, he's not winning the Open, and it's, and it's all going wrong for him, and then he finally realised, oh, right, OK, let's just get on with it. Yeah. And I suppose the, the postscript to, to everything that happened to Woozy at Lytham was that you encountered him again later that year in a fairly high-profile stage. It was always going to happen. Yeah, we, um, we had the world match play at uh, Wentworth. And sure enough, um, I get Woozy in the final of the world match play. And, um, of course, on the first tee, I didn't have the instruction that I had to obey at the Open. And uh, we could do our own thing because it's our own sanctioned event. And I walked up to Woozy and I said, uh, looked in his golf bag and I said, you know what, I'm going to ask you now, don't you? And he told me to go forth and multiply. <laughs> <laughs> Too many clubs in the bag is actually quite a rare occurrence for a referee to... But, but quite a common occurrence is players being put on the clock, slow play. Um, but most professionals know how to ride that rule and they know if they get put on the clock then things pick up. But uh, can you think of how many instances in fact that you've had to impose penalties on players? I mean the one, the one famous one obviously was at the Masters with Guan Chan Lang, the, the amateur, but I mean over the course of your career has it happened often, slow play penalties? No, I've, I've probably been responsible for giving a dozen, something like that. Over a whole think. career? Yeah. That's it, it, it's basically because the system is, is there to get the players moving and once we get to a situation where the players are on the clock uh, that's a, a phrase used by many people and it's when we start timing the players individually every shot once we get to that situation most players know what they're doing 
and they know that if they go over the limits that they're allowed, which is 40 seconds per shot, they get an additional 10 seconds if they're first to play in a series. If they go over that, that limit, they're going to get a bad time. They get mm. two of those in the same round, and it's a penalty. And they know they're going to get it. Because you, at, at I think it was 2015 Masters of Memory Sayers, um, because Guan Chanlang, who <coughs> was the young uh, Chinese amateur who was going so well, he was only four years old as well, which um, certainly <laughs> looked four years old, but you know, an amazing performance by him. But everyone would be leaping a year back because he got a slow play penalty, and, they, and people were saying, watching, were saying, well, all the players are playing too slowly, but he just didn't understand how to play the system, if that, if that makes sense. Yes, that's exactly right. Um, I don't think he had had any uh, training, any practice, any advice on that. He, he, he was, even though he only looked four, he was 14. Yeah. And, and I think taught by his father, I'm not sure if anybody else was involved yeah. in his golfing education. But certainly I don't think pace of play was part of it. And um, his English was remarkably good. And obviously I, I, I spoke to him when we first put the group on the clock I put him and Ben Crenshaw, because I'd been observing the group for a, a hole or two and seen that who were more likely to be the, the cause of it. Whereas Manacero, Matteo Manacero, was, was easily hitting the shots within 25 seconds. Yeah. So I didn't put him on. Would have added him if he had slowed up, but didn't need to. So I was just timing uh, young Guan and uh, Ben Crenshaw um, from the 11th onwards at uh, Augusta. And... Um, I think it's fair to say that the young man struggled and uh, may well have just gone over the time limits. But I felt he's a young man, he's 14 years of age, I'm going to show some compassion. So didn't give him a bad time for his second shot into 11 and didn't give him a bad time for his tee shot into 12. Um, however, his second shot into 13, I thought, well, you know, that was almost double the, uh, the uh, amount allowed. So I, I had to... Unfortunately, <laughs> I had taken up a position to avoid blocking the uh, patron's view mm-hmm. of any of the uh, golf behind a large fir tree. And uh, that meant that Guan had about a 50-yard start on me towards the green. So I now have to get to him to tell him that he has this bad time before he plays the next stroke. So that's me in coat and tie in the uh, Augusta heat trying to uh, catch a 14-year-old who's yeah. young, fit and strong. Not allowed to run at Augusta. Not either. allowed to run. And uh, that was a good test for the previous broken uh, leg. Uh, I did catch him and uh, sweating profusely explained to him that he had um, one bad time. And did he understand what would happen if he had another one? And he said, oh, yes, the penalties. And I said, yes, that's correct. And I said, do you understand that you, you need to pick up a bit of pace here? And he said, oh, yes, I understand. I will play quicker. Well, that was great. And um, I then had to be switched to compassionate mode again on the green of uh, 13. Led him away with another one there. He managed to hit the tee shot at 14 in the required amount of time exactly. At the second shot, exactly on the mark, um, 15 he again exceeded it, but I thought, well, difficult I, shot over water. So I'm, I'm, Are you willing him to get it done within the time? Just oh, so much so. I don't want to give this lad a penalty. And on the 16th tee, uh, Manasero sadly had not taken the right club and hit it in the water short, the par three there at uh, Augusta. And um, so it's now Guan's turn to, to go. And he's playing really nicely. Mm. And... Uh, I'd have to say, you, you, you can't, when you've timed a number of players over the years, you, you get a feeling that you're going to have a bad one. 
So I took that moment to uh, get my phone out. I was about 50 yards away in front of him this time. I didn't want to be chasing him again. And uh, so I, I phoned for help, and I phoned uh, my boss for the week, the chief referee of, of the event, and I said, look, I have this, this situation. He has one bad time already. I said, as I'm speaking to you, it, we've just gone past the limit for the stroke, and he hasn't pulled the club yet. Uh, how would you like me to handle this? And, um, and he said, uh, give me a couple of seconds, and I'll call you back. I said, well, you might as well hang on the line, and, uh, and you'll have the full length of the shot. Oh, and uh, one minute and 48 seconds, he released the, the stroke and, uh, and hit the ball. So he said, right, I'll ring you straight back. So I'm now begging the phone to ring mm. while Ben Crenshaw plays his tee shot and they start walking towards me because I don't want to go charging onto the 16th green and say, Mr. Juan, you have a one-stroke penalty. Could you have got Ben to deliver the news as a sort of conduit? Yeah. <laughs> Maybe, but he wasn't taking it too well either. No, and uh, so I got the call and unfortunately they had reached the green. Uh, but the message was, please, can you have one more word with him? Hmm. I said, I will certainly do that, but I'm not confident that it will have the desired effect. So, um, you know, I, I will have this, this final word, but I, I, I have no more compassion. Hmm. I've, I've, you know, I, I can't, uh, for the fairness of all competitors in, in the Masters. And he said, I quite, quite agree with you. And so I did have one more fairly stern word before he teed off on 17. And I said, you, you really are not getting the point here. You need to play a little quicker. And, I, and the caddy said, well, do you count the yardage in, in all this? I said, oh, yes, everything's included. So I'm now confident they both know what they have to do. And they did manage to hit it in exactly 40 seconds off the 17th tee. So that's job done for that shot. Right. The second shot, unfortunately, was uh, from the valley in the 17th. He had to walk to the top of the hill to have a look. Normally, we would allow a player halfway back and start the clock. I let him come all the way back. I also noticed at that stage that the, um, the chief referee of the Masters and the golfer's father were on the rope line about 10 feet away from me. So I thought that I would let them see the uh, stopwatch being started. And they saw when I started, and, uh, and they thought that was very fair. And unfortunately, he was uh, 58 seconds. Mm. So that was, again, a bad time. And I show them and then went to see Glenn and he said oh no I had to go to the top of the hill <laughs> and I said I know you did but you still once you got back down again it was bad. When you get something like that and there's all sorts of you know opprobrium being poured on you afterwards and oh this is official them gone mad or whatever mm. does that bother you or do you does it sort of wash over you and say no because sometimes you have to explain yourself and, and uh, people don't get the full context as you've given us just now. I think, uh, going back to one of my earlier answers about, about knowing the rules of golf or understanding the rules of golf, is, is probably better. Um, once you understand why they're there and what they're there for, and also our pace of play policies, um, they're, they're, they're pretty robust. They're pretty fair. Uh, and there's only so much you can you know, give a player. I'm going to try and be as fair as I possibly can. The last thing I want to do is give a player a penalty... Uh, for anything which, um, which is contentious. Mm. It's not to say I wouldn't and haven't, but you, know, you want to try and be as fair as possible, and unfortunately he'd gone too far. But uh, again, part, a key part of your job is that you would treat Guan Chan Lang the same as Seve Baisers, the same as Tiger Woods. Don't you? you had to put, um, do you have to put Tiger on the clock playing with Harrington at the, was that Bridgeton 2009? Or? Mm. 
you know, that, that didn't go so well in terms of, uh, of uh, Tiger's view of my, my uh, decision to do that. Mm. Um, but it was, again, circumstances, they were a long way behind. Uh, Tiger is, is, is a fascinating character because I think he's, he, he tends to play at the pace of his playing partner. Right. If he plays with a fast player, he plays quick. If he plays with a slow player, he plays slow. And Podrig is not the quickest. Let's, for the purpose of this interview, call it slow. Yeah. And so Tiger was slow. So two slow players playing together, and they dropped back considerably. There was a huge ruling on, on hole number 16, way ahead of us. Mm. And that's the reason why I was told, don't put them on the clock yet. And this happened for about four holes while this, this backlog cleared. And uh, so eventually they were put on the clock on 16. And um, Tiger didn't think that was great, but he, he understood it. And Podrig, perfect gentleman, yes, he understood it. And um, Tiger hit his third shot into the 16th there, that monster par five, yeah. absolutely stiff, tremendous shot. Podrick hit his third shot just over the back into the thick rough and obviously rushed around to play the stroke and didn't hit a good pitch and it ran across the green into the water hazard and uh, clearly within the time guidelines. But he's now in the water hazard for four, taking a penalty drop for five. And I, I did somewhat bravely ask Podrick, do you know all your options? Uh, as he's walking around the water hazard going back up the fairway because I thought he might have gone back and had the, the short chip from where he played from last time. And uh, he kind of looked at me in a, in a strange way. And, I, you know, I, I've seen that in horror films before, mm. you know, with the, uh, with the baddie, that look, and I thought, he's going to kill me. Um, but he didn't. What would be the <laughs> Clearly, ruling under that situation? Well, then? he could have gone back and played the stroke. No, again I mean, if he'd, uh, if he'd killed you, would there have been a... I don't know, sort of and I wouldn't, wouldn't have cared much, really. Mm-hmm, exactly. you know, some, um, so... He went back into the fairway. He played from there. He made seven. Tiger made four. And Podrick went from two shots ahead to one behind. Mm. And that was effectively the Bridgestone Invitational for that year. Uh, Tiger then said, are we still on the clock? As we're going up to 17. Um, having picked up three minutes, I'd have to say, on the 16th. And I said, yes, you are. He said, well, you know, the next group are only there. Well, he was pointing, pointing at the 18th green at the time. So I said, no, you're still out. And I said, I will cut you loose when you get to the 18th tee. And um, they did pick up another two minutes going up 17. So they've picked up six all in all. And um, so I I cut them loose and thought no more of it. And uh, went back to my hotel and uh, was in a shower getting changed for the evening entertainment. We were meeting the uh, PGA Tour referees for a final dinner. And uh, I came back to see that my phone had nine missed calls and was vibrating with another call coming through. And it was our our press officer at the event saying, have you any comment to make about the Tiger Woods situation? I said, I have no idea what you're talking about. And he said that Tiger was very displeased with me for putting his group on the clock, which caused Podrick to rush and hit his ball into the water hazard, cost him the tournament, and therefore cost Tiger the chance of winning the tournament. Yeah. So I said, not really. I said, um, I, I don't know if, if Tiger knows the, the full pace of play policy on the PGA Tour, but uh, you know, I, I think everything was done by the book. And uh, you know, I'd be delighted to try and explain it to him if he wants, wants you know, to know about it. Yeah. But uh, he didn't. And that was it, really. And pace of play is such a such a hot topic, and you know you see tournaments for the shot clock masters out in Austria where they're trying to speed things up. But 
it brings its own difficulty, but it is so important for the game. Yes, it is. Um, clearly, to, to make any difference to pace of play, you've got to have everybody behind you. We decided with the Shot Clock Masters to do something which is quite special, never been tried before. We were going to time every player's stroke uh, for every round uh, in a tournament, and that's quite a, a large undertaking. It's quite a large investment yeah. um, by, by ourselves to, to try this out and see what we could achieve. And we have um, achieved quite a few things. We have noticed that uh, play was a good deal quicker, and on average it was sort of between 30 and 40 minutes per round quicker. Uh, and something which is even more important and poignant is that the stroke average was about half a shot less per yeah. round. Yeah. And that uh, kind of tells you a lot. And from being there, what was interesting and, and very pleasing was that the, the interplay between the player and the caddy was brief rather than the, uh, the long sort of monologues that happen. Or, uh, chats between both of them now seem to go on for 40 to 50 seconds, yeah. which if you've only got 40 seconds to hit a shot, obviously tells you that's not good. Yeah. Miscut at the Shot Clock Masters, Guan Chang Lang. Now, I mean, it's interesting, obviously, the highly pressurised environment and big uh, personalities there when, say, ego's out there. You know, it's, uh, have you had... Not necessarily a run in there with Tiger, but you must have had some some fiery encounters with players out there. Certainly, yes, I've I've heard some um, um, some fairly uh, old English phrases, should we mm. should we say, uh, none which are repeatable here, um, and from from most of the big players, because yeah. un- unfortunately, um, I normally seem to be in the wrong place at the wrong time, which uh, I don't mind. I, I you know I don't shrink away from it. But sometimes I know I'm going to get it right in the neck. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I, you just have to take it. That's part of the job. So what about television replays? Because nowadays you cannot get somebody sitting at home with a remote control phoning in. That has been, has been changed. I mean, and that brought about some strange instances in the past. What did you think, first of all, about people sitting at home watching and phoning in? I think, it, well, one thing, it, it, it means that they're watching, which is good. Yeah. You know, we like people to, to watch golf. We want people to get interested in golf. Uh, golf is one of those things, I mean, you can imagine how many questions I get if I go down to my local pub or down to the local golf club, for instance. You know, everybody likes to talk about rules, and particularly, oh, I've got a question for you. And I said, oh, great. And um, so people are interested, and they like to help us. And, you know, they've seen something that maybe we haven't. And in many cases, that was true. Mm. And so it all came to a head with Lexi Thompson yeah. uh, in the major just before the Masters last year. And um, certainly the commissioners of uh, our tour, the PGA Tour, that's Keith Pelly and Jay Monahan, and Mike Wan from the Ladies Tour, they really felt very, very strongly that this was not positive for the game of golf. That, you know, a girl who had mistakenly replaced her ball on the green, it was shown by about a quarter of an inch, suddenly gets a four-stroke penalty. Mm. Now, we as rules administrators, you know, we're, we're looking at the fairness of golf, blah, 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 blah. And we'd recently... Uh, us on the professional side, we'd recently been successful in persuading the rules bodies to reduce the penalty for getting, for failure to include a penalty in the scorecard from disqualification Mm. down to two strokes. And we thought that was pretty major and that was good. But of course, with the Lexi Thompson situation, that meant that she got a four-stroke penalty. You know, previous, four years previously, she'd been disqualified down the road, au revoir. But now she gets a four-stroke penalty. But then people started, well, 
four strokes for getting it a quarter of an inch wrong. That's mm. ridiculous. And it didn't really put golf in a good light. So the rules bodies quickly uh, established a working committee, of which I was, I was one, and we decided that we needed to do something about this. And the first thing uh, which I said, I said, well, the first thing we've got to do is watch the pictures because we need to be the first people to see these things. And everybody agreed, yes, that is definitely the way we're going to do it and get the message out to people uh, who are watching golf, said, as far as the rulings are concerned, thanks very much for your help in the past, but now we've got it. You know, we've got people looking at it. And um, so it's, I, I also worked out that it's probably something that I can do in my uh, early retirement. Well, actually, um, this is, we're sitting at St Andrews. That's what you're doing today, is it? For the I will be doing that this afternoon. Yes, yes, I will. Sitting watching television with a nice coffee. Absolutely, yes. Excellent. Well, what other rules would you like? To, because things are changing quite quickly in golf. You know, it's been, things have been entrenched for decades, and suddenly there seems to be a snowball effect of... Uh, pace of play things changing, you know, things like addressing the ball and if it uh, moves due to the wind then it's no longer a penalty, that's changed and plenty of others, but what would you like to see change going forward are there other quite harsh penalties that you would like to see uh, tweaked? I think there is, uh, there is a completely new set of rules coming out on the 1st of, of January 2019. I'm, I'm quite excited about it because I think they are very, very good, a vast improvement on what we have at the moment. I'm not saying that what we have at the moment is, is broken at all um, but the new rules are even better. They're easier to understand. A few of them are going to sound and feel a bit funky mm-hmm. to those people who have been playing golf for a number of years, um, but it's, it's, it's a lot more uh, common-sense uh, version, really, of, of, of golf, how it should be. You know, things like, you know, when you're looking for your ball in long grass and you happen to find it by treading on it. Mm. Well, currently, the rule is, well, that's a one-stroke penalty because you've trodden on your own ball. You must have moved it. Mm. And then you drop the ball. Uh, That might go in a good line, might go in a horrendous line, but you you, you get to drop the ball. Now, that kind of seems that's not very intuitive at all. So the new rule is, well, you found it, that's good. We're not going to penalise you because you found it. How could you possibly fail to move it or stand on it if you couldn't see it? So we're not going to penalise you for that, but we're going to ask you to put it back where you think it probably was. Now, there's going to be a little bit of conjecture there, clearly. But we're all sensible as golfers, you know, we like to think. I'm sure you can get to an agreement where that ball probably was. Hmm. So you can estimate that position and place the ball back in that grass, under the grass, so you can't see it anymore. And that is really common sense. So that, that's something which is very, very special. Yeah. One thing that uh, irritates me and a lot of people watching golf and pace of play is players on greens studying. You know, you think that then the yardage chart should be done and dusted, but they've actually got so much detail on the greens that they are peering at these yardage books because they've got all the slopes written down in the greens, etc. But I always think that part of the skill of golf is seeing things with, your, with the naked eye as well. But... And there's something in the pipeline perhaps that's going to change? Yeah, very much, uh, Andrew. We, we feel exactly the same way. Uh, all of the players are on our players' committee uh, and almost, almost every player that I have spoken to, um, even ones who are using it, because they feel if one person uses it, they've got to use it to you know, keep up with the Joneses. But they do believe that uh, reading a putt is a skill. These green books, because they are professionally um, and scientifically produced give the actual slope on the green and and you can 
by plotting one of these, a scientist can tell you which way the putt is going to break and by how much. Mm. I'm not sure how many players can work it out, but it seems that some of them are and using them uh, a, a lot. We're not sure if it's, if it's a pace of play reason, but, but more for the fact that we feel that it, it is a skill that we need to maintain in the game, that uh, we have asked the rules bodies to look at it. I know that they have done, and I think we're very soon going to have a resolution towards that. Yeah. And uh, we're, we're hoping that we won't have to uh, suffer the, uh, the ignominy of the uh, Greens book for too much longer. As an arbiter of the rules and a, a, a lover of golf, what did you think when you saw Mickelson doing his little jog down the green and, uh, and hockey whacking the ball at the US Open? I'm, I'm glad you, you, you've asked me about that because it's... Um, uh, 14-5 is quite specific in, in, in what it is. If I take you back, the, the Rules Committee does have many conversations, meetings about certain subjects... A number of years ago, we, we were talking about the relationship between 1-2, which is sort of um, a deflecting ball and, and, and those sort of things, and 14-5, the uh, striking a moving ball. And it all came about really with John Daly, who at Pinehurst didn't quite hit uh, his putt hard enough up one of the slopes. And as it started making its way back down the green, it was met by John going up this slope who whacked it again, and this time it went clear over the back of the green. And we kind of reviewed this this footage and felt that, yeah, it probably was the right penalty. The appropriate penalty was two strokes. And certainly, uh, you know, we we looked at a couple of others where a player had a 360 with his golf ball, then knocked it in, again hitting a moving ball. We felt that the right penalty was two strokes. And another one that hit the side of the hole, went to the side, and while the ball was still moving, it was tapped in. They were all appropriate penalties, two strokes. What Phil did was something different um, because he purposely broke a rule and he hit a moving ball. He purposely broke a rule and certainly from the pictures I saw and before he'd said anything, I thought, well, he's going to gain quite an advantage here. So I'm already looking at, um, I'm looking outside that particular penalty. I'm, I'm looking at something stronger. And you have to go to a rule called 33-7, which is unusual, and the penalty is disqualification. And uh, certainly after what he said, I would have had no doubt, because having stated I've been in this, this, this role for 42 years, uh, I've always seen, uh, and I've explained to players many times, it's, it's my job to try and identify any players who deliberately breach the rules with a view to gaining an advantage over their fellow competitors. Yeah. Now, to me, that is the definition of cheating. I mean, immediately afterwards, a lot of people were saying, it doesn't matter who it is, Yeah, this is disqualification, surely. Yeah, that's, that's kind of the way I felt it. Uh, I'm not saying anything about... I know Phil wasn't desperately trying to cheat. That, that, that wasn't the idea. I think he was very frustrated. He was frustrated in his own game, I think frustrated in the fact that the weather conditions had had such uh, an effect on the setup of the golf course. And, um, you know, those, all of those three put together made him react in a stupid way and then say something even more stupid afterwards. But I'm sorry that doesn't exempt him from, you know, the stronger penalty as far as I'm concerned. We would have had, a, you know, a discussion ongoing, I'm sure, in, in those circumstances, but you can't do those sort of things in golf. That, that's daft. And, um, and I know Phil probably understands that and wouldn't mind me saying that. But that, that was a daft thing to do, and that wasn't his finest hour at all. We know Phil Mickelson, he's, he's a great golfer, he's a good guy, and he just got that bit wrong. Can you think of um, any rules over your long career where subsequently you thought, actually, I, 
sure it doesn't happen often, John, but he thought, I've got that. I've actually made a mistake there. I did. Um, uh, I've made several. And um, you know, I, I always say to my referees, I said, you know, you, you, you've either just made a mistake or you're just about to. That's what a referee is. Mm. And oh, was there a Simon I Pan do. in Kronstrasiara? Was there a... um, yes, that was the one I was going to uh, okay. uh, talk about. It was, it was a very sad one, and certainly the way I understood the rule working, uh, it was a particularly tough penalty for him to take. And, um, and then I found out a couple of days later that that wasn't the right penalty and he shouldn't have been penalised. What was the and, exact uh, situation again? It's, it's rather confusing, but... Uh, it was to do with a provisional ball and going back and playing that. And then just before doing that, he dropped a ball from a stake tree. And the dropping of the ball sort of cancelled the additional penalty of playing the uh, incorrect provisional ball. So it's, I, I would don't want to get into the specific... I'm sort of staying with you here, John, yeah. Um, so, but, that, but that's there, that, that story, the, the sort of complicated nature of it is the side of the rules that you say we're trying to yeah. simplify, but also that professional golfers don't know, a lot of them don't even know the most basic rules, or they're rather, they're loath to, they think they know, but they don't want to do anything, so they call in a referee at the slightest whim because so much money or so much importance. Yeah, I, I think I'd like to give you an example that, that this week, I mean, it's quite interesting, we have Hell Bunker, hmm. And the San Martin birds, who normally um, uh, build their nests in the TV compound, which has been enlarged, and they've taken away these walls where the San Martins used to nest. So they were looking for another wall, and they found one in Hell Bunker. So these San Martins have been creating these little nests in the wall of Hell Bunker. Well, clearly, we don't want to mess with, with them while these birds, before they fledge. Um, so... The links here at St Andrews has asked us, you know, are you willing to support our, our ban from golfers going anywhere near these, these San Martin nests? I said, absolutely. I said, it's their home. This is only somewhere where we play golf, but it's their home. It's all caused by TV having, having destroyed... Absolutely, them. yes. <laughs> it's all TV's fault. Remember that. I remember that. It's not remember BBC that. this week. So, <laughs> so we have come up with, or helped by the links with a local rule that pre- prevents players from playing in Hell Bunker anywhere near uh, these nests, which is near the big high wall. So they have to drop back in the bunker. And whenever we say to the players who've been in there so far this week, you're making me drop it in the bunker, so it's going to plug. And you say, uh, just think, yes. think of the San Martins. And we're saying, yes, we are. And one particular player said, well, I'm not going to thank you for that. I said, OK. After he played his stroke out and actually got it pin high uh, from the bunker into, into a pretty strong, strong wind, I said, well, it's interesting, how far would you hit it from the original lie? I said, 35 yards? He said, yeah, probably. I said, so I've allowed you to drop back here because the rule has permitted that. And you've hit it 150 yards and you are now pin high and putting. And I said, and I've disadvantaged you in some way? Yeah. He said, yeah. He, he said, right, OK. He said, thanks, Monty, off yeah. you go. Anyway, <laughs> so um, who are the players who know the rules best? I mean, are there, are there certain players who know them inside out? I think we, we uh, a few years ago, we had a, a, a kind of training school. We used to take a, a lot of players away for, to learn all about professional golf, all parts of mm. it, including the media, TV, 
even down to diet and exercise. And we also had a rules section. And uh, to, to spice things up, because we were staying at a hotel about 20 minutes away, I used to run these quizzes on the bus journeys for just you know, a few easy rules to get your mind these around. These are fun bus journeys. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Now, they were calling for more, I can tell you. <laughs> and uh, it, it was really the Danish players who, who were absolutely fantastic at, 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 at these quizzes. Really? And, and they were absolutely wiping the floor with everybody. Always the Danish players. And the Swedes were pretty good as well. And I'm thinking, these people are not dealing in, in my language. They don't, you know, that's not their first language. English is not their first language. And they're getting all these questions right. Mm. And then you just think a little bit about it. You speak to um, various people in golf in those countries. And you find out that they, as new fledging golfers, if you like to use the N-word, um, they are taught rules as part of their golfing education mm. before they get onto the golf course. Okay. I never was taught before I went onto a golf course. Oh. You learnt from the people you played with. Yeah. Um, so, leaving aside, almost leaving aside rules for a moment, looking back in your career, where you have been at some of the greatest moments in, in golf, whether it's the majors or the Ryder Cups, uh, can you think of your favourite moment to be out there, irrespective of the job you're doing, but uh, you know, great moments you've seen or great shots you've seen or when you have enjoyed being out there most of all? I think Seve's celebrations in 1984 just said it for me. That was absolutely unbelievable. So where um, were you? I mean, we're not far from. We were just above the 18th grade. Yeah, I was, I, was, I was somewhere away. And, uh, you know, I, I had to rely on, on making sure that I had seen what I'd seen uh, on television pictures later. Mm. But um, it was absolutely fantastic and, and just really summed everything up and what a sort of guy he was. And then I think the, the victories of the 85 and 87 Ryder Cups. Mm. 85, it was, it, Seve believed we were going to win. As I explained about the, the, the second shot to, to a par five early in the first, first round, he just believed that it was going to happen. He believed so strongly, and it, and it spread through the team. Yeah, and, and, and when you, you know, we talk about Ryder Cups, I'm not sure where you were at Keogh Island in 91 when there was all the argument about um, it was usually Isinger and Seve getting involved in, in things, but that's when a, a rules official really is tested. Yes, it is, and, uh, and Larry Startzel did extremely well and, and dealt with it. I was on my way to it, and it had already, been, it had already happened at that stage, and I couldn't help but think, had Seve really known the rule? And, and known that even though the changing of, of hitting the wrong ball in foursomes had happened on three occasions, I'm just wondering if he knew the rule that you can only claim for up to one hole. In other words, once you tee off the next hole, you lose the right to claim back holes. So he was really, when he spoke to Bernard Gallagher on the ninth, and, and Bernard said, well, how often has it happened? He said three times. There was only an award of one hole. But then that made the Americans feel quite guilty because yeah. they've breached three times, but they only get one penalty. And I'm sure that affected their performance. Now, I don't know whether Seve was that clever hmm. that he knew this was going to happen and knew that it was a breach as soon as it had happened, or it was just fortunate that it worked out that way. Yeah, and he pulled a burrowing animal from his golf bag. <laughs> <laughs> so what is it now, 40... How many did you say? Four, 40, 40, yeah, 42. 42 years of... Tra that's a lot of travelling as well, because a lot of people look at the life of players or people on tour, oh, it's, it's glamour, it's travelling the world, but it can, can get a bit tiring as well. So um, what are, the, what are the, the pros and cons of, of travelling the world? 
Thankfully, the tour allowed me to travel at the right end of the aircraft, i.e. the middle bit, when I'm going long distance, so that's okay. And that's from someone who's had a deep vein thrombosis, so I am a little bit nervous. Um, but, um, yeah, so that, that's one good thing, but obviously, you know, finding somewhere to put your head each night, you know, you can find a good Hilton hotel, that's, you've got me then. There you are. And what about, um, I mean, how much longer, I'd say, what are you now, late, late 30s? Um, so Something like that, yes. <laughs> yeah. So what, when do you see yourself, or what do you see yourself doing in the future? Andrew, I've, I've probably got three useful years left in me uh, when I'd like to continue to do what I'm doing. Beyond that, I think maybe I can probably help on this TV monitoring uh, side of things and, uh, and, and assist the new young guys who are going to replace us and, and uh, always be available to them if they need help. You know, they're very, very good guys and we've been helping them, you know, in, in get some experience from, from what Andy and I have had over the years and, and give them all that. But uh, if ever they feel they want to, you know, a call and absolutely no problem. Okay, final question then. Over a long, long career, do you think that golf, which prides itself on being a game of honesty and calling penalties upon yourself, do you think it is as honest as it has uh, ever been? I'm involved in a professional sport um, and there is an awful lot of money. I mean, Keith Pelley has done a fantastic job in driving our prize money so high and the same on the PGA Tour. That is a worry sometimes because, you know, when you're playing for those sort of amounts, you know, there there must be temptations um, for some of them. However, thankfully, the cases are so rare. I have had two or three in, in, in my career that, you know, I don't really want to relive. But they're thankfully so, so rare. It, it, it's a very special sport, this, and, and, and people are, they do play it correctly, I, I, I do believe. Um, but if there is somebody out there, I'll find you. <laughs> That's a good place to leave it. John Palmer will find you. Thank you very much for talking to us today. John. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks for listening to the Life on Tour podcast presented by Hilton. You can get in touch via Twitter and Instagram at European Tour using the hashtag Life on Tour or on Facebook. Subscribe now, and if you enjoyed the show, feel free to rate and review us on iTunes and Apple Podcasts.